Hello and welcome to one of the final episodes of Lost in Science for the year of 2020 and won't we all be glad to see the back of this year. My name is Stu and on the show this week I am finishing off the interview that we started last week with Dr Angela Patterson about her work with Indigenous Australian grasses and trying to figure out which of those might be good candidates to turn into agricultural crops on a on a bigger scale than has previously been done before so if you missed last week look up the podcast and you can hear part one of that interview part two is coming up later in the show Claire, what have you got for us this week? Well, Stu, I have a interview this week as well. I was lucky enough to chat to Adele Pentland, who is um, a PhD student um, and paleontologist. She has discovered only the third uh, species of pterosaur. Well, she's named and as a group discovered the third species of Australian pterosaur ever found. Um, and so she lives uh, in a remote location up in Winton for all um, dinosaur and um, fossil uh, freaks out there. You would you would know Winton well. Um, there's there's a lot of fossils out there, and a lot of there's an incredible uh, museum called the Age of Dinosaurs Museum. And um, she lives out there and um, does her work and her research. So she's going to be talking to us all about. Uh, well, first of all, what pterosaurs are, and then also why they're so difficult to um, to to find as fossils, um, and some of the, some of the stories that she's got from the field as well. So that's a that's a great chat with um, Adele coming up in the show. Sounds great. Thanks, Claire. Australian dinosaurs, Australian food, all coming up on the show. Please stay tuned. <laughs> Last week I spoke with Dr Angela Patterson about her work looking at Indigenous Australian grasses and their role in possible future agriculture and we looked at some of the details of what the grasses were and what they were looking for in a grass. So this week we're going to go into a bit more detail uh, about the benefits of using Indigenous grasses in agriculture. One of the other things that I think I was interested in about um, a lot of the Indigenous grasses is that the the wheat crops are botanically what we'd call an annual crop they they produce seed and then they die but a lot of these native grasses are perennials and they keep coming back you don't have to replant them all the time is that something you're specifically looking for or is that just kind of a side benefit of these grasses again another great question you're hitting the nail on the head um the the grain system that's current that historically has been here and we're currently researching is one that involves perennial crops um, and not only perennial but also whole ecosystems worth of plants all existing in the same field. So not only is wheat an annual which means that you harvest it once a year and then the fields bear for about six months and then another crop is planted. Um, these, these species not only perennial but they also historically they wouldn't only be grown on their own. They'd be grown with the legumes, with other grain species, with sedges, with herbs, with shrubs, all in the same hectare of land. 
And so that, that complex ecosystem um, is it creates amazing environmental benefits and the feedback that I've received from the Aboriginal communities and I'm learning more and more as we go which is just wonderful is that it has very important cultural benefits as well and if you take a plant out of its context and grow it um, in, a, in a commercial agricultural system where it's a monoculture fed with lots of fertilizers, you use chemicals for weed control that might have economic benefits um, but you don't get the same cultural or environmental benefits when you remove a plant from its ecosystem. So what our project is looking at is can we, instead of removing the native grains from the ecosystem and growing them like wheat, can we leave them in the ecosystem and find a way in the modern, using modern supply chains and modern markets to um, productively harvest and then process these in an economically viable way? because there were really good reasons why wheat was domesticated and is now grown in monocultures because it's much cheaper and more efficient. Um, so trying to go back and do it the, the historic way, the traditional way, sometimes feels like it's going in the wrong direction, but in many ways, the environmental benefits, cultural benefits, holistic health benefits, it really is the right direction, but it is really complicated. Certainly a lot more complicated than, than plowing and planting and harvesting and, and weed control, which is pretty much what you do for, for growing wheat. Um, did In your research, did you find much difference, obviously between the different species that you looked at, but did you find much variation within the species of, of how productive they were or how, you know, how easy they were to harvest or any of those kind of, um, you know, practical uh tasks that you need to do was there any any a lot of variation within the the species that you looked at oh yeah absolutely and as a a, a plant breeder my i am just overwhelmed with excitement when i see the incredible variation that there is i mean part of my job before i did this was we would import lines from overseas that had genetic diversity on purpose and bring them to australia and try and figure out which ones would do well in australia because we needed more diversity in, it, in the introduced crops in Australia. But with these native grain crops, the diversity is all around me all the time. And you, I know the listeners can't see this, but I'm talking to you from my office and my office is filled with little seed packets. It creates a big mess, but they're little seed packets of grain from what we call genotypes. So they're um, genetically different plants. Um, and if I see something really interesting um, in a field that we're allowed to collect from with both cultural and legal oversight, we're allowed to collect. Um, I'll, I'll take that, that seed head and I'll put it in a packet with a little label um, so that we can grow out the ones which have uh, better harvesting characteristics. They might be long heads or they might mature at the right time. They might have giant seed, um, um, potentially also better or worse nutritional characteristics as well, which you don't know until you start measuring them after harvest. Um, but yeah, the, the genetic diversity is incredible and it doesn't take much, um, I mean, anyone, you don't, don't have to take much training before you can look across a field and go, that plant has interesting characteristics, that one has interesting characteristics. Um, we, we should look more into the genetic diversity of Australian native plants. And then I, I guess um, from, from a breeding point of view, then you could, you could start combining the, the beneficial characteristics together and produce even even better plants yeah yeah it's kind of like uh, breeding plants is not really any different to breeding animals or whatever and most people know the story of a labradoodle you want to get the the nice gentle nature of a labrador crossed with the intelligence of a poodle 
to get a Labradoodle and, and hopefully most of the offspring will be both intelligent but also gentle and lovable. Um, but yeah, obviously in that mix, you get some that are a bit narky, like a, like a poodle and a bit dumb, like a Labrador. So part of plant breeding is, is you cross two plants and then you just select from the offspring. And this sort of stuff is, it's, it's natural. So just like, you know, breeding dogs, it's, it doesn't require a lab. It doesn't require injections and Petri dishes and genetic modification. It's just natural processes. Um, and it, but it's the, hum, the human input is to select the ones that you think are going to be beneficial. And I think that's a really interesting thing that we should look more into over the next three to five years. So you've, you've tasted all of the different grasses and you've started collecting the, uh, the gene pool, I guess. What, what's, what's the next step for your program I guess um well the, the first and most important one is to to make sure that everything that we do comes under the authority of the aboriginal people on the land on which we're working so the traditional knowledge holders have managed these um, for thousands of years and so they've done their own versions of breeding and their own versions of land management um, and various versions of eating and sharing and and um, all the cultural stories and song lines that go along with it and that knowledge is so so important so the first step really is to to come under that authority and then collaborate together going forward um, and that will inform a lot of things like the role of fire in these agricultural systems so traditionally um, the biomass was managed with fire, was burnt um, once a year, once every two or three years, depending if it's grasses or, or sedges or once every 10 years, 20 years, whatever. Um, and so, but agricultural systems with wheat and other legumes, oats, barley, whatever, we never, we never burn those during the cropping season. So one of the first things we need to look at is let's, how can we combine the traditional knowledge with the agricultural knowledge and modern technology to try and go forward? Um, and that's a really cool journey. And um, I'm not an Aboriginal person, but I'm really loving, really loving and very appreciative of the elders that I chat to and the community members that are also loving getting to eat together um, and going back to some of their traditional foods. It's, it's, um, it's really interesting to, uh, to see the, the meeting of the traditional knowledge and the science coming together to, um, you know, I guess rediscover some of the things that we probably should have or someone should have looked into a long time ago <laughs> to, uh, to figure out, you know, there was people already living here. We should have asked them how it was possible to live here rather than just completely transplanted a different system on top of them. Um, look, I think we're running out of time. So I, I would just like to thank you for joining us on the show. I really was interesting to hear about your work and uh, you know, the, uh, the direction that you've, that you've taken your research in um, and I hope we will hear more from you in the future and hopefully you know in the not too distant future we'll see some of this stuff in the shop so we can all taste it. Yeah absolutely have it with some Kwandong jam it's really delicious. <laughs> I, I will do my best to, to seek it out and thanks thanks again for joining us on the show Angela. Yeah thanks Stu it's been an absolute pleasure. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network you're listening to Lost in Science. So our guest today is currently undertaking what I think could be one of the coolest PhDs I've ever heard. 
Australian pterosaurs is the topic. And, I mean, um, you would know Australian pterosaurs, you know, the terrifying giant flying reptiles that, you know, while they are definitely extinct, if given half a chance, I reckon they would probably eat you and everyone you know. (laughs) But lucky research associate from the Australian Age of Dinosaurs Natural History Museum and PhD candidate from Swinburne University, Adele Pentland, is here to talk all about what makes pterosaurs so fascinating and why finding fossilized remains of them is so rare. Welcome to Lost in Science, Adele. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Adele, first question, what is a pterosaur and how is it different from a pterodactyl, which of course that's what I remember from, you know, being a uh, very, you know, dinosaur enthusiastic child. Yeah, so pterosaurs aren't dinosaurs. That's one of the first major misconceptions. They are related in the bigger group archosaurs, which uh, includes dinosaurs, pterosaurs, and crocodiles. But they're different from dinosaurs in that, well, their wing is made up of their fourth finger that's just stretched out and it's got this massive membrane of skin and that's how they fly around. And there are a couple other differences in terms of... uh, the position and orientation of their shoulder girdle and their pelvis and their ankle bone. But of course, the wing is the main event. Pterosaurs are different from pterodactyls. A pterodactyl is actually a genus of pterosaur. Uh, It's one of the first pterosaurs that was named uh, way back in the early 1800s. It was Pterodactylus antiquius. And for whatever reason... I blame toy manufacturers mainly. The name has sort of stuck. So Mm. we think of the entire group as pterodactyls when the proper term is actually pterosaurs. Right. It'd be like calling all dinosaurs Tyrannosaurus. (laughs) Oh, that is so wrong. I'm so glad you cleared that up. Thank you, Adele. That is excellent. Right. So it's it's quite interesting um, thinking about pterosaurs and that wing like they seem more structurally like a bat than they do, like with with that sort of membrane than they do a bird. Yeah. Interestingly, pterosaurs are the first vertebrates that developed powered flight and they did it millions of years before birds did and, of course, bats came along a lot later. And, yeah, you're kind of right. Their wing is a bit more like a bat, but the difference with a bat is that they have five digits in the hand like we do. Uh, Whereas pterosaurs, they don't have five digits. They've just got the four. And then uh, pterosaurs actually have three really small fingers at the front of their wing. And then the main part of the wing proper is the fourth digit. Whereas if you look at a bat, their digits are actually spread out and support Mm. that wing in different parts. So aerodynamically, they're not too different to a bird in a way in that you've got that leading edge of the wing, which is really strong and rigid um, which is really important structurally and then the rest of it can sort of not flutter in the breeze but it's got that more give to it if that makes sense right and you know what to you makes pterosaurs so interesting to research well specifically when we get into australian pterosaurs it's just that we don't really know that much about them like it's wild west the first pterosaur fossils were described in the early 1800s But in Australia, 
the first pterosaurs were described in 1980. Whoa! We have so much catching up to do. I know, it's crazy. And there are only three species of pterosaur known from Australia at the moment. The first was named in 2007 after a lot of back and forth. I've heard anecdotally that the editors originally lost the first manuscript and this was back in the day before, you know, we could sync things with our, you know, cloud libraries and whatever. So I think they basically had to rewrite the whole thing again, Whoa. which is crazy. That is, and then must have been a very disappointing day for them. Uh, I mean, I can only imagine a setback like that would just, it'd just be, you know, the biggest punch in the gut you can imagine <laughs> yeah. for, you know, a paleontologist. Um, and then, yeah, the second pterosaur species was named in 2011 and then uh i had the honor of naming the third last year with my colleagues let's let's talk about that then that sounds very cool so tell us about that discovery how was it made yeah so the bones were found back in april in 2017 by a local grazier a local farmer in the winton area his name's bob elliott uh, right, so that's that's was, local local to Queensland. Yeah, local to the Winton, Queensland area. So Bob was spraying for burr and he came across these bones <laughs> and he found part of a jaw with uh, a partial tooth as well and some limb bones. And the crazy thing is Bob's parents, David and Judy Elliott, they actually founded Australian Age of Dinosaurs. So oh, wow. he's been around dinosaur bones and other fossils for years and years. So it was perfect. He knew exactly what to do. Um, now you have to tell us a little bit about um, what he found. What was the species? What was the um, pterosaur? What's its name? Uh, so in the initial phase, he found, uh, as I mentioned, part of a skull, uh, including the jaw, uh, teeth, bits of limb bones, in one fell swoop, he had found the most complete pterosaur in all of Australia. All of the other pterosaur finds before this were just a bone or a scrap of bone somewhere. And right. there had only been less than 20 fossils found before this. So already off the bat, it was an incredible find. Uh, and based on what he'd found, they were able to work out that it, it was a type of pterosaur called an ornithochirid. Uh, which are from the Cretaceous, makes sense. The dinosaurs in the area as well are Cretaceous in age. And yeah, I was uh, putting together a, a research application to do some plant and insect stuff with the museum. Um, and I got offered the chance to work on the pterosaur and, you know, learn a little bit more about it and... Uh, it was through that work that we sort of worked out it was a new species and a new genus as well. Wow, a new species and a new genus. Yeah, so it's pretty similar to pterosaurs like Anghanguera. Uh, if anyone's seen Walking with Dinosaurs, it was featured in that. And uh, other pterosaurs like Ornithocarasimus from England as well. So um, they've got this big prominent bulge on the end of their snout uh, it's actually made up primarily of bone it's called crest and n although not all the pterosaurs in that group have it uh, it's pretty diagnostic and how did you name it and what did you name it at Australian age of dinosaurs we tend to give every single new species 
a scientific name and a nickname. Oh. The pterosaur that I'm working on actually got its nickname first. Uh, so during the process of working on this pterosaur, uh, the former mayor of the Winton Shire, Butch Lenton, he passed away and we knew straight away that we wanted to nickname it for him. Uh, so since his last name is Lenton, I also thought that the species should be related to that. So it was going to be something Lentonite. Uh, but I sort of, I really wanted the name to be something easy for anyone to say and for kids to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after thinking about it for a long time, I came up with Pharaoh Draco. The bones are preserved in ironstone. So they have, you know, this rusty look about them that actually impregnates the bone and keeps it nice and solid these bones would have been hollow when this animal was alive. Uh, So the fact that they're now filled with this sturdy ironstone is one of the reasons why Bob was able to find them at the surface. Before that, they'd been kicked around by sheep and out in the elements for (laughs) years and years. And, uh, yeah, so I put it together and it was Lenten's Iron Dragon, Pharaoh Draco Lentini. And... uh, I've been told after that that's actually a boss from the game Minecraft, uh, but I've never played that. I'm a little bit too old for Minecraft. Well, um, it does sound like you'll be appealing to the kids on a number of different levels then. So nice one, Adele. Um, tick, tick, tick. <laughs> um, that is, that's a lovely story. It's nice to be able to name not only um, a species but name a genus as well what not a lot of scientists would would get that opportunity in their careers yeah it's weird to think that I was able to do that and the paper came out only a few days before a big paleontology uh, paleontology conference the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting in Brisbane Uh, and it's crazy to think that paleontologists from around the world were entering the country and hearing all about this new find. Uh, And then, yeah, I got to speak about it at the conference as well, so. That's very, very cool. Is it unusual to find pterosaur bones? Is that something, because you don't really hear as many pterosaurs being described as you do dinosaurs. Yeah, they are a lot rarer than dinosaurs because their bones are hollow and uh, the outer edge of the bone in most species of pterosaur, that's only one millimetre thick. Wow. So not only are they hollow, they're pretty fragile. So when you think about it, when these animals were alive, they stood a greater chance of getting bumped and knocked and flattened and squished compared to the dinosaurs as well. So it's not that there were more dinosaurs than there were pterosaurs. It's, you know, to do with the fossilization process, what happens before that, and then after it as well. Like most of the dinosaurs in the Winton area that have been found are sauropods, these massive long-necked dinosaurs that weigh tons and are, you know, 10, 15, maybe in some cases 20 metres in length. The reason why we find more of them is because for a farmer or a, a grazier, I should say, it's a lot easier to spot a large chunk of bone than this tiny little tooth that's only about five mil long. We should talk a bit about the fact that you aren't in Melbourne at Swinburne University. You are, in fact, 
um, 100 kilometres away from Winton, are you? Is that right? Can you, can you tell us yeah. a bit about where you are and what you're doing now? Yeah, so after I finished doing my Bachelor of Science, uh, my honours at Monash University working on AMBER, I was applying for as many paleontology jobs as I could and there aren't that many, unsurprisingly. And so I moved up here to Winton to actually work as a tour guide at the museum for a year and was on one of the digs that um, I met my partner. And yeah, I live on a 32,500 acre sheep and cattle station, 100k out of town, working away on fossil material from here. And there's no place I'd rather be. This is it for Australian vertebrate paleontology for sure. Uh, the dinosaur bones that we find just keep on blowing my mind and uh yeah the relationship that I have with the museum is it's just it means the world to me now it sounds like if you know sheep are falling over bones and kicking them around um in paddocks and um farmers are finding bones as well in the middle of um paddocks that there are quite a lot of you know dinosaur fossilized remains and pterosaur fossilized remains around Winton why is that yeah, so the main thing is that we have the right age rocks here and we don't have volcanic rocks that have since destroyed fossil material. So there's not many Triassic or Jurassic age rocks at the surface across Australia generally. Uh, so most of the dinosaurs and the pterosaurs that you hear about are from the Cretaceous Uh down in Victoria, uh, there's Cretaceous rocks on the Otways coast, but it's only a very thin sliver and then you've got to contend with uh, the tides and, you know, bad weather and all that kind of stuff. Whereas here uh, in the Winton area and even more broadly in, say, neighbouring Hewenden, Richmond, uh, Ilfracombe, Isisford, Longreach, uh, you're sitting on dinosaur deposits or you're in even older rocks that were left behind this massive inland sea the Aramanga Sea so if you head towards more Richmond way then you're discovering not dinosaurs as often although Mm. they can still turn up uh, but more often these massive sea monsters things like Coronosaurus Queenslandicus which is uh, a big mosasaur I believe um, and then you find, you know, elasmosaurs, you know, just crazy big wow. teeth, fish-eating monsters of the deep. Well, you've you've painted a picture there of a, of a terrifying um, Australia many many years ago. <laughs> and for everybody listening at home, I do do have to mention that um, Adele's got the most uh, excellent purple. Uh, pterosaur earrings on at the moment well done they definitely win um, earring of the year Um, Adele (laughs) Um, now for everyone who is looking to maybe uh, find out more about Australian pterosaurs and the work that you do and the work that the museum um, does uh, where can they find that out yeah so Australian Age of Dinosaurs has a really great comprehensive website we link to all of the research that's available and the museum really invests in making sure that the scientific papers are publicly available. So even if you don't want to read through the jargon, you can at least see 
photographs of these amazing fossils if you can't make it up to Winton to see them in person yourself. Uh, and then another great way to support the museum is to become a member and doing that you uh, often get a, you always get a copy of the latest copy of the journal. So uh, the most recent copy, it has a glimpse of Ferro Draco on the front cover and it's got a big 10 page article written by me about the initial discovery up until publication and then what the press was like afterwards because they just went nuts for it. Um, so, yeah, if you want to sort of figure out how does you go from going tour guide job to becoming a researcher with a museum uh, like Age of Dinosaurs, you might get some useful tips out of that. Well, Adele Pentland, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you all about pterosaurs. I feel so much smarter now um, and I'm definitely going to um, try to find some of those um, excellent pterosaur earrings as well, just in time for Christmas. Thank you so much for sharing your story um, and the story of how you named Pharaoh Draco Lentoni with us today. And I do hope that you can come back on Lost in Science sometime in the future and talk to us more um, about the research that you do thank you so much for having me and i look forward to chewing your ear off about all things dinosaur and terrorists are related as well That's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get locked in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.